Well, um, it's it's great to be back, and um, uh, I, I somebody was asking me earlier what what we did during our our time away. We went on a cruise of um, Mediterranean ports, um, or not ports, uh, historical sites in the Mediterranean near ports. So uh, we went to um, what uh, uh, Pompeii and uh, Malta and Athens and a bunch of different Greek islands and, and Ephesus. So it was a great time. And we began before we did that. We went to Germany and we saw some some sites in Germany and in Italy. So it was a great cruise and a great vacation. And I took 4,500 pictures, and I'm only going to show you some of them today. So, what, as many as we have time for. So we'll just have to see how many we can get through. Um, uh, and, and one of the reasons uh, um, I want to show you some pictures is because Jesus uses an image here um, in this passage that I don't think is the one that, that we would naturally um, uh, uh, be drawn to. I think when Jesus talks about a city on a hill, um, at least I think of a place like like San Francisco, a city um, in hills. We don't think of a city on the top of a hill because we think what kind of city could fit on the top of a hill. Uh, but I think in the ancient world, when Jesus used this metaphor, when Jesus talked about a city on a hill, people had a very specific thing in mind. And and I want to I want to share with you what I think it was Jesus was talking about. Um, my guess is he was specifically thinking he was talking to a Jewish audience. He was probably thinking about the temple in Jerusalem, which is a great big building built at the top of a hill. And from what we know from historical documents, it was probably 60 feet high and it was uh, probably uh, about an acre in size, maybe a half an acre. You don't know which measurements to believe, but it was up on the top of a high hill. Um, Mount, Mount Zion and Mount Moriah is where Jerusalem is. And so people would have seen it from all over the place. And we sadly, the Romans destroyed it two two millennia ago, so we can't we can't picture that. Plus, Jerusalem has been built up all over today, so it's hard for us to picture what that would look like. But what it probably did look like is something like this next picture. Um, this is uh, the next picture. Um, this is the Acropolis up there in the uh, um, up in the top. Uh, this is the this is in Athens, and there is a big building on the top of that hill uh, called. Uh, the Parthenon, and um, uh, it, it is it is sitting on top of something called the Acropolis. The Acropolis is a Greek word that literally means uh, city on a hill. Its acro is high, like um, uh, like an acrobat is somebody who does batty things up in the top of the circus, right? Up high on the you know trapeze or whatever. So an acrobat is somebody who's up in the heights, and a polis is a city. It's uh, where we get our word politician or or a metropolis where Superman flies around um, is the big city. Um, a cosmopolitan is somebody whose city is the world. So uh, acro high polis city. So the high city. This is this is um, the high city. Now Athens has grown up a lot, so um, it's hard to see at a first glance what what you're talking about. But back in the olden days, they didn't have skyscrapers. They didn't have the tall buildings you see um, off t- uh, in the background. You didn't see this big uh, port in the front. But what you saw was the Acropolis. You saw the high city um, and on top of it, the Parthenon. That's the kind of image Jesus probably had in mind. This picture is actually taken from the ship, which is like five miles away. I was I put my camera on its top zoom and, and that's what it looks like. Um, so t- if you look at the next picture, it gives you a better view of what it looks like close up. It's a great big building. Those are little people you see on the uh, on the wall there. And um, it's on a high it's on a high mountain 
or a high hill in the middle of town. So it's a very commanding, it's a very commanding thing. You can see it um, today from all over. The next picture shows you a different view. This is if you kind of walk around from the uh, for, to the other side of that first one. This is from a lower hill next to it called the um, the Areopagus or Mars Hill, which is actually a mention in the Bible. The Mars Hill is, and so you can look up from Mars Hill and see the Acropolis. And on top of it is this uh, temple called the the Parthenon. It was uh, erected to honor the um, the pagan goddess Athena, which is uh, where Athens gets its name. It's a city named after this pagan goddess, goddess Athena. So that's an example of an Acropolis, but it turns out Acropolises are all over the place. Every every Greek town had an Acropolis. And so let me show you another one. Um, this is an Acropolis on an island called Rhodes. Uh, there's an island near Turkey called Rhodes. And this is the Acropolis of Lindos. And uh, you see the city down below. And then up on the top of the hill is what what is called the Acropolis of Lindos. Now, uh, Lindos is that's been conquered by pretty much every country in the in the Mediterranean world. So over time, it became more and more of a kind of a castle. But there is, or there always was in the past, and you can just barely see it. There was a temple up there too. I forget who it was for, but uh, it became kind of a castle, and knights and all these different people spent their time there. So that's another example of an Acropolis. And what they have, what they have in common is they are a commanding presence. There's something you can't miss. There's something you, you have no trouble at all seeing. Let me show you one more. And um, this is the one on your bulletin. This is the um, island of Santorini, um, uh, the town of uh, uh, Fira in Santa, uh, Santorini. And in this case, it's interesting because the entire city is on the hill. I mean, literally, the entire city is on the hill. And the reason for that is Santorini is a is a volcanic crater like um, Crater Lake, only instead of having a lake in the middle, it's got the ocean because it's not completely closed in. And so all around the rim of the crater is the city. So if you look in one direction, you can see kind of up to the high end of the rim. And in the next picture, um, you can look down and you can see uh, the city is up on the hill. And it's, a, it's an absolutely amazing sight. Uh, the next picture shows you um, uh, what it looks like when you're up there. Um, that's uh, the the center island there is actually the volcano or what's currently uh, it's still an active volcano. I would never buy property there, but because um, uh, it blows up. And um, uh, but that shows you kind of where it is up on the top of the hill. And the next picture is the other perspective, and you see there's the city up on the hill from the volcano. There's the ship in the foreground, and then the island, uh, the city up on the top of the hill. So uh, no matter where you go, I think there's one more. Yeah, so it really jumps out at you. No matter how far away from it is, if you can see Santorini, you see this city on the hill. And so when Jesus talks about you are a city on a hill, uh, you know, for us today, that could be anything. It could be San Francisco or who knows what. But in the ancient mind, it was a very obvious thing. It was the thing that caught your attention. It was the thing that jumped out at you. It was the thing you couldn't miss. And, and, um, I think if, if there's any doubt that that's what Jesus had in mind, I think the other metaphors he uses here where he talks about salt and light um, show that that's what he's getting at. If you think about it, right, salt is something, if you're eating some food, you may not be aware how much salt there is in it, but then if you add salt, you go, oh, okay, I taste the salt now, right? If you're sitting, if, if you live in Alaska and it's midnight and you think it's like noon um, because you're just foolishly trusting the light outside 
And you, you don't notice that the sun is eventually going to hit the horizon sometime in the next couple of hours. And, and so you don't realize it's actually kind of gotten a little darker, right? And you don't know it's dark until somebody comes in and flips on the lamp and you, oh, sure enough, it's gotten dark. So when there's light, suddenly you're aware um, of its presence, whereas you might have, you might not have been aware while it was dark. So Jesus is saying, you, you, his followers, people who are listening to Jesus, people who are following Jesus, are a city on a hill, something you can't miss, something you see from all over the place, something everybody notices. He says, you're like salt and light, things that people will immediately be aware of as soon as, as soon as their attention, um, uh, 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 grasps that they're there. And I think that's what we hate about this passage. Um, I don't think we're comfortable, uh, being on display like that. I don't think we want to be held up as an example for others to look at. You know, what is the, what is the number one fear? Psychologists tell us that the number one fear people have is public speaking. You know, if somebody said, I want you to come up here and, and tell me about yourself, most of us would like, you know, cringe down under the, uh, under the, the seat because we don't want to do that. We don't want to be on display. And the truth of the matter is a lot of us have very good reasons for being humble, right? We have good reasons for being humble. If somebody says, Luke, I want you to tell us all about what a great marriage you've got. I'm going to say, well, it's okay, but no, I'm not going to be writing a book. You know, uh, if somebody says, hey, um, I want you to tell us all about your finances. And you say, well, you know, I haven't bounced any checks this month, I, I think. But no, I'm not going to get a radio show and start telling people how to manage their money. You know, even 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 where we're saying, okay, well, I'm doing okay, we don't want to be a paragon. We don't see ourselves as an example that people should look at and say, do like them, be like them. We don't see ourselves that way because we've got we've got a lot of the time we've got reasons why we're not paragons. We don't see ourselves as paragons. You know, I, I'm I'm an okay husband, but no, I'm not a great husband. I'm I'm an okay wife, but no, I'm not a great wife. I'm I'm okay as a parent or as a child, um, but no, I, you know, I'm not going to hold myself up as an example for anybody. And the same thing in every area of our life. Am I a great, you know, am I great on the job? Am I great at school? Am I, am I a great in my spirituality, in my sexuality? You know, what, what area of my life would I want to be held up as an example? And yet Jesus tells us, hey, guess what? That's what you are. You are an example. You are a city on a hill. You're salt and light. And we go, man, I don't know if I want that. I don't know if I like that. So, um, so what does he mean? What does he mean when, when Jesus tells us we're salt and light? Does he mean, you know, try harder, make sure that, that you live up to that high calling of yours? Uh, is he saying you better have a good marriage? You better have, you know, your sexuality and your, your spirituality. You need to be an example. Is that what Jesus is saying? I don't think so. I think Jesus is saying something completely different. I think what Jesus is saying here is you are an example of God's grace and love and mercy. And there's a bunch of ways I could illustrate that, but because this is Matthew 5, uh, a great chapter, if you're looking for something to read in the Bible, I could always recommend Matthew 5. Um, what I want to do, what, what came to mind is Matthew 5 is a great way of illustrating what I think Jesus is getting at. And if you've got a Bible handy, um, or if you can kind of picture it in your mind, let me just t- kind of illustrate what what makes Matthew 5 so amazing. 
If you've got a Bible, um, just open it up to the front. It may take you a couple of moments to find Genesis because there's like um, tables of contents and all that stuff. But the first book of the Old Testament is is the book of Genesis. And um, the first book of the New Testament is the book of Matthew. And what I want to do is I want to just compare something. Uh, you know, this is something you can get when you just flip through the Bible. We don't, we're not going to stop and read any verses. You can just kind of, kind of get a sense of this just by flipping through the Bible. So, so let me encourage you to do this either now or later. If you open up the Old Testament, what you find is there's a bunch of stories. There's a story about how God created the world and, and, um, these, these people called Adam and Eve and their children, Cain and Abel. There's a, a guy named Enosh, and then there's a guy named Noah. There's a bunch of stories about different people and how God did things with them, and there's different different things going on. You get to a guy named Abraham, and then he's got kids, Isaac and Jacob, and and they've got a uh, Jacob's got a son named Joseph. And there's all these stories that go all through the book of Genesis, uh, stories about people and how God relates to them. And then you get into the book of, that gets you all the way through the first 50 chapters of the Bible, all the way through the book of Genesis. These stories about people. And then you keep going, you get to the book of Exodus, and, um, and there's more stories. There's stories about, uh, uh, the people of God who are slaves now in Egypt, and the, the Pharaoh of Egypt, and a man named Moses. So more stories about more people and all the things that God does, right up to the chapter we read from earlier, uh, chapter 20 of the book of Exodus. Because there the stories come to a stop. The stories come to an absolute halt. It's like somebody puts the brakes on. Because what happens then is you get a long list of rules. You get, you get what's called the Ten Commandments. Uh, and, and you may be familiar with them. You know, do not murder. You know, do not have uh, false gods. Um, all, all these uh, commandments in Exodus 20. But then immediately after that list of commandments, the, the list of the Ten Commandments, you get to um, the passage we read. It said, when all the people witnessed the thunder and lightning, they were afraid. And they said, you know what? That was a very bracing experience. Uh, um, I'm glad I've got something interesting to tell my children about how I heard God speaking from the mountain. And you know what? I don't want to ever do that again. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to elect you, Moses, and you go listen to God. And we will stay here and our heart will eventually quit pounding. And then when you come down You'll tell us what God wants, and we'll be okay with that. So that's what happens. Moses goes up and says, Moses drew near to God, and um, the Lord said to Moses. And then more rules. It wasn't just those ten. It's all kinds of rules. He says, he says, um, uh, uh, don't make gods of silver. Uh, don't make gods of gold. Uh, and when you make an altar, just make it out of earth, You know, maybe a brick or something like that. Don't make it out of stone. If you do make it out of stone... Just use the stones that are laying around. Don't chisel stuff. Just kind of grab some stones and heap them up. And don't make it a great big altar. Don't make it a super high altar because, you know, you, you climb up one of these pagan altars, you know, that's 20 feet up in the air. People can look up and see under your toga. Okay? So don't make a great big altar like that. Don't do that. He says, keep it, you know, kind of a human scale altar. Don't, don't overdo this. And then he goes on. Chapter 21. Ordinances. How you can buy and sell slaves what to do when people hit each other, what to do when they steal an ox, on and on, chapter 23, 24, 28, all the way to the end of Exodus, more laws, more rules. And then the book of Leviticus, it's nothing but rules. The entire book of Leviticus, nothing but rules. Uh, the book of Numbers, more rules. There's some stories, we start to see some stories again, but more rules. 
uh, Deuteronomy, more rules, lots and lots and lots and lots of rules. So that's the Old Testament. Now let's compare it to the New Testament. The New Testament begins the same way. There's stories. There's stories about God and how there's these people who God has, has had a relationship with. And then there's this guy named Joseph who's going to get married to a woman named Mary. You, you may have heard this before. Um, and they had a baby uh, named Jesus. And then there was this king named Herod, and they flew, the wise men, and they went to Egypt, and they came back, and, and John the Baptist, and then Jesus went out of the wilderness and was tempted by the devil. And then chapter 5, the stories stop. But what happens this time? Is there a long list of rules? No. In the Old Testament, there's an incredibly long list of rules that begins when the stories stop. But in the New Testament, the part of the scripture we're reading today, instead of having a long list of things to do, don't build your altar too high, you know, don't do this, don't do that, be sure you do that other thing, what do you get? You get assurances. You don't get do this, you get you are. It's not go make sure you do this, you better be sure if you want, you know, you get you are. What, what do we get? We get you are. Jesus says, Blessed are, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are the meek, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, people who feel that God is so far that they are starving, they feel like a starving man who who cannot even remember what it was like to have God anywhere near them. Jesus says you're blessed, blessed are the merciful, blessed are those who are pure in heart, blessed are the peacemakers, blessed are those who are persecuted. Blessed are you when people persecute you. You are blessed. This is not a list of things to do. This is a huge difference. It's not the Old Testament. It's saying, look, God blesses you. God loves you. People say, but yeah, what about that long list? What about that long list of rules? And in verse 17, right after the passage we read, Jesus says, I'll take care of the rules. He says, he says, do not think I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish, but to fulfill. I will deal with the rules. I will take care of the rules. Forget the rules. I'm going to deal with the rules. I'm going to deal with the entire law. You remember one thing. You remember you are blessed. So with our passages, the hinge the hinge between those two parts of the conversation. You are blessed. What about the law? Ours is the hinge in between them. And what does Jesus say? Jesus says, you are an example. And so we have to ask ourselves, what are we an example of? Because I think mostly we say to ourselves, I'm an example of someone who doesn't achieve the goal. We look at ourselves with that Old Testament viewpoint all the things we wish we were and aren't, all the things that we try to do. And, you know, I've got some success in this area, but not that area. I've done better here, but not so hot there. We see ourselves as a collection of failings. And we say, I don't want to be a paragon. I don't want to be an example because I'm not a very good example. But Jesus invites us to see ourselves instead as an example of how God loves us, how God wants to relate to people who are not paragons, 
people who have not kept the law, people who built their altars too high or, or did whatever, whatever they did wrong, whatever they failed to do right. Jesus wants us to see ourselves as an example of God's grace and mercy and love. He wants us to remember that God has already blessed us. God has already sent his son Jesus to save us, to to live for us, to die for us, and to be raised to reconnect us to God so that we can actually have God working in us to make us into the kind of people God wants us to be. Jesus invites us to see ourselves not as a paragon of failure, but as a paragon of God's love. So he says, you are a city on a hill. Now, what do we do with that? What do we do with that? Well, we don't do much, right? That's the point. If we were any good at doing things, we wouldn't need Jesus. The main thing we do with this is we just remember it. We remember that God loves us. God doesn't, uh, well, he, he cares, but God is not going to be stopped by our inability to keep that list of rules. Now, it's true, Jesus does give us some instructions here. He says, he says one thing, he says, he says, no one after lighting a lamp puts it under the bushel basket but on the lampstand and gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. And I know there are people in this room right now who are breathing a sigh of relief. Finally, something I can do. There's good works. I can do something. Let my good works, okay, I'm going to go find out what those good works and I'm going to do them. That's not the point. Jesus says, be very careful about good works. In fact, if you want to read the next chapter, chapter 6 of Matthew's Gospel, he says, be very careful with good works because it can be an incredible snare. You can start doing your good works for other people's approval. And that's not the point. He says, don't worry about the good works yet. They'll come because God's going to be in your life. God's going to be working through you. There will be good works. And we're going to talk about good works next week. But today, the lesson is, ask yourself, what are you an example of? Are you an example of somebody who tried and failed to keep that incredibly long list of rules? Maybe not even these rules, the rules you've set for yourself. Are you an example of somebody who can't do the things you want to do? Or you are an example of a God who loves you anyway? Because that's the picture Jesus wants to leave us with. We are examples of a God who loves people who don't achieve what they set out to do. And we're also an example that God cares about the people who have no relationship with them. That's why he wants us to be an example to them. An example that they don't have to fear God because they can see how God relates to us. When I get my hair cut, People ask me, you know, what do you do? And you kind of try to avoid saying you're a pastor. And eventually they pin you down and you say you're a pastor. And they say, what church? And I say, Jewel Lake Parish. And they say, never heard of it. And um, we don't have a great big bubble dome next to our church. So if we had one, they'd know about it. But, but, but I say, yeah, it's, it's on um, Jewel, Lake, Jewel Lake Road. And they say, where? And I say, you know, you know, Sand Lake Elementary. They say, oh, I know that church. People, people know this church. People know where we are. They, they've, they've driven by. We have a great location. We're on a, we're on a major road. Um, we're, we're on a corner. 
Uh, people stop at the traffic light. People go to the elementary school. People park in our ele- in our in our lot while they go to the elementary school. People come to the food pantry. Or they come to the um, the Montessori school. Uh, people know where we are. People know this church. We are, like Jesus said, we are inevitably a city on a hill. People can't help but see us. So imagine what it is you'd like them to see us as. Do you want them to see us as a people who are striving and failing to keep a, a, a bunch of rules and, and and not actually paragons except of kind of mediocre success? Or do you want them to see us as a paragon of a God who loves people who don't keep the rules? That's what Jesus is inviting us to do. He's inviting us to see ourselves when people drive by to see us as examples of God's love. That's my prayer for this church, that we can be that kind of church. Thanks be to God. Amen.